Did you find that? Uh, maybe I dropped it. Okay. Good morning. My name is Dave Dorst. I'm the associate pastor here. And if you're new, if I haven't met you yet, I'd love to meet you after the service. Uh, our senior pastor, Dave Silvernail, is up in New York at a wedding, conducting a wedding. So uh, if you have your bulletin, I know there were a lot of inserts this week, but there is a sermon outline, so you can follow along. It's got all the scriptures in there uh, with, your, with your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we have one for you at the church office. You know, we have a, a lot of books. If you, don't have, if you don't have much of a library, come by the church office soon. And you've got your pick of hundreds of books. So, if you've driven the California coast between Los Angeles and San Francisco, there is a town about halfway called San Simeon. And you may know that because that's where the Hearst Castle is. When... Kath and I were newlyweds before we had kids. We drove that coastline and stopped and toured the castle, which is amazing. Uh, I think we had also seen the Biltmore Estate in Asheville, North Carolina before that, and just both of them. Incredible. William Randolph Hearst was a wealthy publishing magnate in the first half of the 20th century, and he was the kind of guy who spent his money as fast as he made it. And so not only was he known for his lavish mansion where he would entertain celebrities and politicians, but his art collection was so extensive and valuable that when the Depression hit, he was forced to sell some of his pieces. He sold $11 million worth, which today would probably be several hundred million, uh, and it barely made a dent in his collection. So he had quite a collection, and there is the story that one time he heard about a very valuable piece of artwork and set his heart on it, said, I, I got to have that piece. And so he told his agent, and his agent went and searched the world to find this piece of art. And after months of searching, the agent came back and said, essentially, the good news is we found it. The bad news is you can't buy it. Because you already own it. It's sitting in one of your warehouses. You've actually owned it for several years. You know, as ridiculous as that sounds, it's actually a pretty good picture of us. Probably more than we'd like to admit and I don't mean that in just a physical way, although there are some people that I know that have extensive collections and forget what they own, um, books, CDs, those kind of things. I don't know. Um, but I, I see that as a picture of us in our lives where we are searching for the great things in life, willing to do whatever we need to do to chase security, comfort, identity, Love that makes us feel whole. And Christians, sometimes we, we are waiting for more of Jesus or, or a second blessing or, or a higher life or 
something and all the while we have all of those things. What we need and what we seek for, we just forget that they're already in our possession. Today's text is Paul's reminder that we've got amazing spiritual treasures that sometimes we forget about. And we need the Lord to remind us what they are and that how they can help us as we live and we follow him. But before we read the text, I read something very cool about the book of Ephesians this week. And I, I want to share it with you. We had, we had our big introduction to the, to the book last week, and I hope you're as excited as I am. Uh, but the, David Paulison is the editor of the Journal of Biblical Counseling. And he wrote this. Newcomers to biblical counseling often ask questions like, I'll never begin to help other people grow in wisdom if I need to master the entire Bible and to solve every variant on the human condition. Where do I begin? It's a fair question for someone who would like to counsel from the Scripture. Where do I start? And his answer is, you will not go wrong if you plunge into Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Master it. Be mastered by it. Work Ephesians into your thinking, your living, your prayers, your conversation, your practice. The Bible is vast and deep, and human life is diverse and perplexing, but in a pinch, you could do all counseling from Ephesians. It's all there. Paul exemplifies and teaches wise pastoral strategy. Ephesians aims to teach you how to live. Ephesians is practical theology. It is faith alive, life walked out in full view. It is ministry in action. And Ephesians is an open door to using the rest of Scripture. I love that. So with that introduction, let's turn, turn with me to Ephesians 1, 15-23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The grass wither and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path. Open and illuminate our minds that we may purely and perfectly understand your word. Our lives may be conformed 
to what we have rightly understood. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. These nine verses are essentially Paul opening up his prayer journal and saying, this is what I pray for you, Ephesians. He's sort of teaching and exhorting as he prays, as we often do. But it's his fervent prayer for this group of believers that he knew when he started the church. Do you remember? You can read all about that in Acts 19 and 20. He knew them, but now he's separated from them. And he's writing back, and he's saying, I still remember you. I still pray for you. Have you had people share very specific prayer requests that they're praying for you? Something along the lines, I'm praying that God will give you strength in this time, or I'm praying that he'll give you a spirit of peace or a spirit of boldness, whatever it is. I'm always encouraged when people share those kind of things with me. The first thing that Paul tells them is of his thanksgiving that the church loves well. He starts with that. Verses 15 and 16. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, Paul begins this whole section with, for this reason. What, what reason is he talking about? Well, I think it's really reflecting back on everything that's come so far, the whole first 14 verses. And just a really brief summary of those verses would be this. This is my version. God planned our redemption. Christ accomplished it. And the Holy Spirit guarantees it. Okay, there's a whole lot more there. Go back and read it. Go back and listen to Dr. Dave's sermon last week. Um, but in light of all those truths now, Paul is now going to commend the Ephesians for their faith and for their love. He's already said in verse 1 that he believes that they're faithful in Christ Jesus. And he repeats that. And we see that these believers had both the vertical relationship of faith in Jesus as well as the horizontal relationships with one another. And Paul, even in prison, is hearing the good report back. And what a beautiful testimony of any believer's life that they would be complimented in both of those areas. Right? A full Christian life cannot leave out one of those. You can't just sit in your room and praise God and then when you leave your house, you're just spewing anger and indignation all over the place. Right? First John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And conversely, you can't make all the friends in the world and be a loving, kind neighbor and never commit your life to Christ and obey and follow the Lord and expect to be living a full Christian life. Jesus himself said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, 
and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so Paul is thankful for that. How are you doing in both of those areas? So as Paul moves on, again, thankful for what the Ephesians has, he knows that they lack some things. And so he's going to pray for things that they need. The second part of his prayer is intercession for the church's maturity. Verses 17, and we're going to just go through the first half of 19. Intercession for the church's maturity. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, remember that he's still praying this, the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Firstly, I want you to notice in these verses is how different Paul's prayer is from ours. I think our prayers are mostly for our jobs or, or lack of them for our kids or, or maybe aging parents, for our medical health issues, uh, or maybe just for general time management and stress. And those are good things. Continue to pray about them. I don't want to discourage you. I'm not making light of them. But those are, when we ask for monthly prayer requests, that's what we get. And I don't know what you pray for in the, you know, the darkness of your own prayer closet, but that's what we hear. And it's, I recognize that in myself. It's very easy to bring God our list is what I need and neglect praising Him, thanking Him, confessing our sins, and as Paul does here, praying for the spiritual health and spiritual growth in others. I actually find myself praying some version of verse 18 having the eyes of your heart enlightened a lot. I, I, I tend to come back to that idea, especially for Christians or at least people who were raised in the church who I've found out have lost their way. And so it's not because I'm super spiritual that I pray this. It's because I don't know what else to do. It, so the prayer goes something like, Lord, Open their eyes, give them understanding, break through their unbelief and the darkness that's come into their life, the walls that they've built up. Remind them of your truth and your love and of the great blessings you give to those who walk in your ways. Maybe they'll stop trying to end their marriage or wreck their life with substances or just generally make ungodly choices. I pray that because it doesn't seem like anything else is working, right? They're not listening to counsel. They're buying into everything that the world is selling them. And I don't have any idea to break, how to break through what's going to turn things around other than that the Lord is just going to have to change their heart and fill their minds with his truth. 
when we first come to faith in Christ, we acknowledge or we know that it takes the Holy Spirit's work to open our spiritual eyes, to replace our dead hearts of stone with living hearts that beat for Him. The Spirit makes us new creations in Christ. But obviously, we can still be blind in some areas. We can forget the things that we've learned. We can stop growing as Christians and yearn for the old life. It's why Paul prays for these saints, right? He's addressing believers that they still need the eyes of their hearts enlightened. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but I shall know fully. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So there's a sense that we'll always be limited in our understanding on earth. We still need the Holy Spirit to help us to press on, to move forward in knowing God better. And so Paul asks for the Spirit. He says, the Spirit gives us wisdom and revelation and an enlightened heart in order to see three things. That's the first half of 18. I mean, the second half of 18, the first half of 19. There's three things listed there. The hope to which God has called them. I mean, that's the, the assurance of their great salvation that brought them from darkness to light, from being orphans and enemies to being adopted sons and daughters. They need to see that hope again. Number two, the riches of their glorious inheritance. Commentators say that that could be, that could mean our inheritance or it could mean God's inheritance, which is us, I'm not really sure, but either way, I'm pretty sure it refers to what awaits us in heaven. The glories and rewards when we are in God's presence in a perfect world with no sin to ruin anything. And third, is that they would see the immeasurable greatness of his power. And really, the rest of the chapter is going to work out how we see God's power. But here he says, they need to see God's power, that God can do all things on our behalf. When we have a right view of God, of his character, his mighty acts of salvation, when we long for our eternal blessings in heaven, It gives us strength to continue on in this life. It orders our priorities correctly. You know, in Sunday school this morning, we were talking about Ecclesiastes. This is the calling Sunday school class. And we were talking about, if you remember Ecclesiastes, we read the part of the first chapter and talked about how life often just seems so meaningless. And Frank, I'm going to, sort of quote you, probably not going to get it right, but Frank Pugh reminded us that life, as Ecclesiastes described it, is like a rat race, but it's, what do rats do? They spin on the wheel, and so it's the same thing over and over, right? 
and there's not hope. Ecclesiastes, it starts out so dark. Nothing new under the sun. It's all meaningless. And yet, Frank reminded us that viewing our lives as moving in a linear line to eternity gives us meaning, purpose, and hope. I thought that was a beautiful way. See what you miss when you skip Sunday school. So finally, the last section, Paul gives them what every church in every time, in every place, needs most. It's a reminder of the greatness of Jesus Christ. So that will take the second half of verse 19 through the end, 23. According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This illustration is to make sure the teens are still awake. Remember Iron Man 3? First half of the movie, you may not have seen it, but uh, there we see there's these menacing videos of this villain called the Mandarin. And he seems to be the mastermind behind some terrible things happening. And then halfway through, Spoiler alert, close your ears if you haven't seen it. We find out that the Mandarin is actually this harmless British actor, right, Ben Kingsley, and and he's not really the bad guy. There's another bad guy, an evil scientist or something. I don't remember exactly the plot. But it's the misdirection. You thought he was in charge. Same thing happened uh, in The Dark Knight Rises. Remember, most of the movie you're convinced Bane is just this terrible, awful villain. And then near the end you realize, oh, it's the really nice girl that's been winning Bruce Wayne's trust or something. So, this is Ephesians 1. This world's been looking at the Caesars, the Pharaohs, The kings, the presidents, the dictators, even the villains. And saying that's the real power. Those are the rulers and authorities. And the Bible says we need to open the eyes of our hearts and remind ourselves, the Spirit will remind us again, who the real power and authority is. All of those Powers, ungodly powers through the ages, they're just going to be footstools for the King of Kings. He allowed them to rule for a season, but the curtain will be pulled back at some point and we will realize the true power. Does this year's presidential election matter? Yeah, a little bit. Not in the grand scheme of eternity, not much. Jesus Christ is already seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning. 
And in the age to come, there will be no other authorities and all will bow down before him. Hebrews 2 reminds us that at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. You know, they, in the Old Testament, they measured power by two events. Creation and the Exodus. Right? But now there is a greater picture in the New Testament. The resurrection of Jesus. We know that God's power is available to us because He used that power to raise Christ from the dead. And that final phrase, who fills all in all, is a way of saying that Christ asserts His kingship, His authority, in all places at all times, as fully as He pleases. God raised Him from the dead, exalted Him to be seated at His right hand, and has given Him all rule and authority. And whether that is acknowledged throughout the world or not is irrelevant. There are godless people in every city in America who would scoff at being told that Jesus is in charge. Right? There are closed countries run by atheists or other religions who assume that they can keep Jesus out because their laws say it's illegal to be a Christian. But none of that matters. It does matter. We pray for the persecuted church. But in the end, Jesus is the king over everything. And in the coming age, his rule will be undeniable. And the best place to understand that, Jesus is Lord, should be the church. Right? He is the head of every legitimate Christian church. And we are his body. We are part of the great body. We are his body here. We are his hands and feet accomplishing his will in this world. And we need a constant reminder that it's not our church, our agenda, but his And we need the glorious picture of the all-powerful king to remind us that we can carry on because in the end, we win. Now, if you don't get anything else from this sermon, I should probably stop saying that. It assumes too much. I'm sure you're getting everything. But remember this. I just read a book by a friend, Ricky Jones. It's called Too Good to Be True. And the theme of the book is that we don't want to believe the gospel promises. They seem too good to be true. And hey, for the most part, it's a good idea to be a bit skeptical about things in life, right? That can't miss investment opportunity or beachfront property with little money down or the blind date that's perfect for you. All these things. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. But when it comes to the gospel promises of Jesus, 
We need to lose our skepticism and pray that God opens the eyes of our hearts to see everything that he promises is true. Now you may say, but I, I don't read my Bible enough. How can I believe that God loves me? Because it's true. But I, I know what I've done. There's some dark stuff in my past. How can I believe that a holy God would accept me? Because it's true. But I haven't done much to win people to Jesus or to teach them about God. How can I believe that I have an amazing reward waiting in heaven? Because it's true. But I I don't pray much. How can I believe that God's power is available to me? Because it's true. But I can't go five minutes without sinning. Without collapsing into selfishness and greed. How can I believe that the Holy Spirit is filling and renewing me? Because it's true. It's all true. I know it sounds too good to be true, but God promises all that and more. We need to say, I believe, Lord, help me in my unbelief. Holy Spirit, make my heart believe. Let's pray. Lord God, Father of glory, thank you that the saints that I'm preaching to this morning have faith in Jesus and love for one another. If anyone here does not know Jesus and His salvation, God, I pray that You would reveal Yourself to them. Give them a new heart. Make them new creations in Christ. But I ask that You give everyone the spirit of wisdom and of revelation to know You better. Open the eyes of their hearts even greater to remember the great hope that you called them out of darkness into glorious light. Remind them of the treasures and riches that they will have in heaven. Show them that once again, that you are powerful to accomplish all things. You raised Christ from the dead and you already stand far above all earthly and demonic rulers, so we know that you can accomplish all things for our good and for our salvation. Thank you for your body, the church, where we celebrate and teach these things every week. Remind us that you are the head of the church and that we are to follow you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.